Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Here we try to give you information so you can put yourself further on that pathway toward optimal health. Our health system is challenged, especially nowadays. We have an extra challenge on top of the already existing challenges. We have COVID. I suspect if our immunity is healthy, we'd have a better shot at dealing with COVID, but we'll get to that later on in the show. Six out of 10 adults have a chronic disease. Four out of 10 have more than one chronic disease. Even children, it used to be our children, about 18% had a chronic disease. Now it's over 50%. What is going on? Also, 90% of healthcare costs are due to uh, working with chronic diseases. We don't do very well that. We do well with surgeries, antibiotics, but not chronic diseases. Disease is not an either-or situation. It's not that once your morning blood sugar, the fasting levels meet 126, and then you get the T-shirt, the jacket, the hat, and say, welcome to the club, here's your metformin, you're diabetic. No, it doesn't work that way. Kaiser did a study showing that if for every point your sugars are above 84, you have a 6% increased chance of getting diabetes. And disease is not a... Statin deficiency, depression is not a Prozac deficiency. There's more underlying things going on, and it's very important we look at the underlying causes, which is something I think naturopaths are excellent at. So is our system working? What can we do to improve it? So here today, here today we have Darren Ingalls. He's a naturopath, and I believe the naturopathic approach is excellent at looking at underlying causes. I believe functional medicine, which I espouse greatly, is very much along those lines, if not copying it. But anyway, Darren Ingalls is a naturopathic physician with more than 26 years experience. He's also one of the first naturopathic physicians to receive a fellowship in the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. His practice focuses on chronic immune disorders, including Lyme disease, autism, allergies, asthma, recurrent or persistent infections, and other immune disorders. He uses diet, nutritional herbs, homeopathy, immunotherapy to help his patients achieve better health. He also is the author of a book, The Lyme Solution, a four-part plan to fight the inflammatory autoimmune response and beat Lyme disease. Welcome, Dr. Ingalls. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for having me. So, what do you think about this chronic disease epidemic? (laughs) Well, you know, the statistics you just rattled off are pretty dismal and uh, sort of discouraging. But, you know, I've been in practice for over 20 years, and I've seen that slow, steady decline of people's health in the United States. And, you know, I think we've got a lot of different factors that we can attribute to. And, you know, we can kind of go into it, I think, in more detail. But, you know, if we look at what people are eating, their diet, certainly I think the American lifestyle contributes to chronic illness. People just aren't sleeping the way they used to and really just not taking care of themselves the way that I think we used to back in the old days. So, you know, if we kind of put that all together, we've got the perfect storm, you know, to create these this level of chronic illness. And I think when we combine that, looking at a lot of different environmental factors, you know, I'm an environmental medicine doctor by training. So if we look at, you know, people's chemical exposure and toxins and medicines, and we look at what that's doing to our bodies metabolically, what it's doing to our immune system, what it's doing to our gut, again, all of that really contributes to this, this really poor health that we see in the United States and really, I think, in any westernized culture. You know, I don't think it's unique to the United States. You know, we see this in people living in Europe and Asia and elsewhere. So, you know, I think it's time that uh, we, particularly as adults and, and on behalf of our children, really start taking stock of our health 
and, you know, start doing the things that we really need to do to live healthier, happier lives. Well, you said a lot of different things, like it's the core of our lifestyle and existence. What we eat, our lifestyle, our sleeping, the medicines we're taking, toxins, all of this big toxic soup that's creating a perfect storm. I heartily agree with this, yes. So tell me more about this. Tell us about how what we eat is affecting this. Absolutely. Well, again, I think, you know, I've spent a lot of time traveling in Europe and around the world, and I look at how the rest of the world eats versus the way we eat here in the United States, and there's such a drastic difference. I think, you know, the, the quality of food that we eat, the kinds of food that we eat, you know, living in the United States, let's be honest, no, we want food, you know, every day of the year, whether it's in season or not. So, you know, as a first world country, you know, we can afford to import food from all over the world. I mean, I kind of laugh, you know, in the middle of January, even here in California, you know, you can get blueberries. I'm like, well, blueberries don't usually come out in California in January. And you look at the package and they're from, you know, somewhere in South America, Mexico. And I kind of laugh because it'll be labeled as organic. And I'm like, well, as far as I know, when you eat organic food, it lasts about three to five days, and then it goes bad. So I'm not exactly sure how you get an organic blueberry from Chile uh, all the way to California in that short period of time, and it doesn't go bad. But, you know, this is kind of what we're working with. So I think, you know, when we look at are we really eating the way that we as humans are designed to eat. And I I think that the combination of are we eating really fresh food, I think the nature of the American lifestyle is that we're all busy. We want convenience foods. We want things that you can warm up, heat up in a matter of minutes versus really taking time to prepare a healthy meal. I think, you know, again, we want food, whether it's in season or out of season. So to get food to last, it has to be preserved. It has to have something on it to allow it to not break down. So, you know, we might be getting exposed to various, you know, pesticides, herbicides, preservatives, which in turn can actually affect our gut health. And just the the type of nutrients that we're getting, you know, are we really eating the kind of foods that really feed our gut, that really feed our microbiome, that really feed our cells? So... I think as as Americans in particular, we need to look at, are we really eating the way that we're we're really designed to as humans? And, you know, if you go out there and look about, you know, different diets, you know, what, what really should everybody be eating? I don't think you'll get any consensus among any health professionals, any nutritionists, certainly any naturopaths on what everybody should be eating. But in saying that, I think, you know, most studies, most books that have been written, most articles I read agree that eating a mostly plant-based diet is healthy. And if we can, you know, really educate people on, again, eating organic, eating locally grown as much as possible, you know, my feeling is the less hands that touch the food, the better. Uh, You know, the more hands that touch it, that means the more potentially manipulated that food becomes. And again, if we can, you know, get it closer from coming out of the ground right into our mouths, that serves us in a much better way. So uh, there needs to be really an education process, uh, and it starts from the top down. I mean, you know, I'm a naturopathic doctor by training, so, you know, nutrition is a big part of my medical education. I think a lot of, you know, conventional doctors out there, uh, to this day, medical schools really don't teach a lot about diet and nutrition, so a lot of medical professionals are really not well-equipped to help educate people on what they really should and should not be eating. So, you know, if you're at that state in your life where you're, you're, you feel like your diet's really not as good as it could be, you're not sure really where you should go for information, I would highly recommend that you get in the hands of, you know, a naturopathic doctor, a functional medicine doctor, a nutritionist, someone who really has that know-how that can start walking through, you know, how to start making these little changes in your diet so that you have better health. I agree with that. In medical school, I think we had two hours of nutrition, and I believe I slept through it. I think I slept through it. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I see a lot of my conventional colleagues, you know, the level of education for nutrition is really around TPN, total parental nutrition, which is IV nutrition. You know, you got someone in the hospital that for whatever reasons they really can't eat. That's their sole source of, you know, nutrition. And that's quite different than the average person that's just walking down the street and just doesn't eat a very healthy diet. So it's really not the, the best information that's going to help those folks living with chronic illness. But uh, fortunately, again, there's a lot of folks out there like us that, that have this information, and it's just a function of, you know, reaching out and getting that help. Well, I had one person on the show that had a severe trauma, and he was in a coma, and he uh, studied what was in there, 
nutrition that they give them IV and said that, oh, wait a minute, this is very unhealthy. So we have to be aware. <laughs> anyway, so you're talking about, so what it sounds like is we should be eating locally grown organic food, many colors. When we eat meat, or f- we want to make sure it's grass-fed, organic, um, and we fish, we want to make sure it's wild. We want to eat healthy oils because the vegetable oils and the corn oils are too highly processed. So I imagine that brings us to avocado oil, which has been a lot of uh, scandals about about how healthy it is. Olive oil, we have to be careful. Coconut oil. And avoiding the vegetable oils, corn oils, and the canola, etc. Is that basically it? Yeah, you know, I've actually advocated for what we call an alkaline diet, and this is nothing new. It's been around for decades. But I think if we go back to our true paleo forefathers, this is probably the way they actually ate. I think when I see my patients and they're like, well, I follow a paleo diet, I'm like, well, what does that really mean? And then they tell me what they're eating. Well, I eat, you know, two pounds of red meat a day. I eat hardly any vegetables and any fruit. It's, you know, a very high-protein diet. Uh, And we now know from some of the literature that a high-protein diet can actually be very harmful for your kidneys. Uh, It's just hard for your body to process all that protein. So I think our paleo forefathers, really, they forged off the ground. It was mostly a plant-based diet, you know, what they could pull out of a, you know, a root from the ground, a berry off a vine, something off a tree. You know, we killed when we could, uh, but it probably wasn't daily. So meat was part of the diet, but it probably wasn't a big part of the diet. So, you know, we know that when you eat certain foods as they break down your body, they can make your cells alkaline, they can be neutral, or they can be very acidic. And when you look physiologically at what's happening in the body, you know, your cells by and large function best in an alkaline state. With the exception of your skin, your stomach, your bladder, and for women, the vaginal area, which is very acidic, that's to help protect against outside invaders. The rest of your body more or less is is alkaline. So as we give your body more foods that break down to make those cells more alkaline, the cells function better, they repair faster, your body detoxifies better. And when you look at the studies that are out there, you know, we do find they're pretty much positive across the board. And what I like about it, too, is that it's a sustainable diet. You know, I think a lot of diets out there are more fad diets or they're really designed for some sort of short-term weight loss. This is really not about that. This is a way that you can eat every single day. It's nutrient-dense. You get everything your body needs to function optimally. And, you know, you're not starving. You're not really restricting anything that's damaging. So, you know, I, I break it down into really three categories to make it simple for people. You know, there is a list of foods out there that are very alkaline forming, which is fortunately most plants, some legumes, some nuts and seeds, and, you know, those you can eat as much as you like. And then category two are foods that tend to be either kind of neutral as they break down or maybe even slightly acidic, and that tends to be pretty much all animal protein, so eggs, beef, chicken, turkey, fish, uh, and a lot of fruits. And so those, I say, well, let's have it as part of your diet, but maybe it's not the bulk of your diet. Let's keep it to about 25% of your intake for the week. So very simply, you can just divide your plate into quarters, and those foods really shouldn't comprise more than a quarter of the plate. And then the last category of foods that I would I really advocate that people avoid just because they do tend to be very acid-forming, much for the same reason that, you know, crops can't grow in acid rain. That acid environment is just not conducive for growth, and it's the same thing in our bodies. Our bodies just don't thrive in an acid environment. So most of acid-forming foods in the body, they tend to be junk food, processed food, high-sugar food, which hopefully most of your listeners aren't eating anyway. But if you are, that's the time to start shifting that, getting that out of the diet. And other foods that tend to be very acidic, you know, that tends to be dairy products. Uh, Of course, coffee is highly acidic. So, you know, most of my people who are chronically ill are so exhausted that they drink, you know, a ton of coffee just to get their energy up. And although it might be a short-term fix, it really isn't addressing the underlying problem. So, if we can start shifting people to something like green tea that's more beneficial for the body than coffee, that's great. But again, that's kind of a cliff notes version of an alkaline diet. Again, there's a lot of resources out there online, and I have an entire chapter in my book where I talk about an alkaline diet. But I think for most people out there, again, there's no diet that fits everybody, but I think this is a general way that most people can eat that's very nutrient-dense, healthy, and sustainable. Well, the way I translate that, it's just kind of a revision of what we said previously, is to eat a lot of organic plants because that will help you go toward alkalinity. Even lemons will and limes. Yep. 
Um, and, you know, not eat a lot of meat, but if you eat meat, it should be grass-fed. Also, interestingly enough, if you eat a lot of protein, it'll eventually spike your insulin. But I'm told that if you eat the fat with the meat, it won't spike your insulin. And keeping your right. insulin stable levels is a beneficial thing to do. So, But if you're going to eat the fat of the meat, it's got to be organic because the toxins tend to store in the fat. And, so, and then also what I hear this as saying is avoid anything in a box, a bag, anything processed, anything tends to be in the middle of the supermarket because those tend to be acidic, as does sugar. But sugar's got a lot of other difficulties as well. As well, I mean, it depletes the magnesium. I mean, it uses. I mean, it, it's 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 a real disaster for our diet, folks. So, okay. Yeah, well, I think in the era of COVID nineteen, especially, you know, a high sugar diet is certainly not conducive for preventing COVID nineteen. And again, although there's no specific research on it, I think uh, most of us would agree that people who are consuming a high sugar diet are probably more at risk of COVID-19 as well as any other, you know, infection that's out there. Good. I was planning to put it later. But what can we do to minimize our risk from COVID-19? My approach was... uh, that, okay, build up our immunity and then bring it on. I mean, you know, I mean, build up our immunity, be healthy as I can. I mean, people are saying, oh, 5G is causing it. No, I think 5G is breaking down your immune system. I mean, because there's a lot of studies about EMF that it, uh, which is electromagnetic field, it opens up the blood-brain barrier, it opens up the gut barrier, it interferes with intercellular communication. I mean, the studies that by Hardell out of Sweden, that it increases the risk for glioblastomas or acoustic neuromas. We've got our own study in the U.S., American Toxicology Study, showing increases the risk for glioblastomas and heart schwannomas. There's a study of Hugh Taylor out of Yale, along with Suleiman Kaplan from Turkey, that you put a cell phone near a pregnant abdomen, it results in brain changes, especially the hippocampus. So EMF, I mean, 5G... No, it's not causing uh, COVID, no, but it's certainly building, taking down our immunity system along with this big toxic soup that we'll get to later, that it is, you know, making people more vulnerable if their immunity system is down. So what do you suggest we do to stay strong when COVID comes our way? Well, like you mentioned, I think it's really a function of load. You know, we need to lower our load, and we need to think about all these things that adversely affect our our bodies and certainly our immune system as just one more factor that increases the load. You know, in environmental medicine, we use this concept of a barrel, that we're all born with a barrel, and some people have a huge barrel and some people have a shot glass. And some of this is probably driven by your genetics and your SNPs, you know, your disposition to how well you can detoxify and other genetic factors. But to a certain degree, again, we just live in a more toxic world. And I think EMFs are just one more factor that add to that overall load. So, you know, we've got to start getting people to get healthier. And certainly when you look at, you know, the things we know are great risk factors for COVID-19, you know, obesity, being overweight, diabetes, uh, heart disease, you know, all these things which are by and large preventable illnesses are disposing people, certainly those that have been hospitalized and died, uh, as well as, you know, some of these nutritional factors like vitamin D deficiency. You know, we kind of find it ironic here in a place like California where, you know, we get lots of this big fiery ball in the sky called the sun, which is where you really get your vitamin D exposure. And here we know that vitamin D uh, deficiency has been one of the biggest risk factors, certainly of people who've died from COVID-19. And yet, you know, the government wants us to stay inside and not be out in the sun. <laughs> so, you know, I think we, we have to use, use a little bit of common sense and, you know, get that vitamin D as much as possible. And if you live in a part of the world where you just don't get enough sunlight because it's too cold, or whatever other purposes, you know, you certainly can take a vitamin D supplement to help compensate for that. And, you know, we've had this ongoing argument in the nutrition world about, well, what's an optimal level of vitamin D? And, I, again, I don't know that you would get consensus on it, but, you know, the problem is when you do a blood test and you look at a reference range, a reference range just reflects what the average population has. 
And again, I think most of us would agree that a majority of certainly Americans are probably vitamin D deficient. So that reference range reflects a lower amount that we probably should have. And I think if you look at what the vitamin D council recommends, I think, you know, they want your blood level somewhere between 50 and 100. And yet the reference range at most laboratories is 30. So, you know, getting adequate vitamin D, which again, vitamin D in food is a very small portion of what we get is our actual vitamin D. It comes almost exclusively from sunlight exposure. So, you know, we, we've got to start, you know, again, helping people uh, make a little bit of common sense and take care of some of these factors that's going to help them get healthy. And as we do that, I think that's the best thing we can do to help reduce the risk of COVID-19 because ultimately that's going to translate to a healthier functioning immune system. I mean, in my practice, you know, now we're on a, you know month 11 of COVID-19. And fortunately, I mean, I have had one patient uh, who actually had a lot of risk factors that's been hospitalized with COVID-19 and no one else. So I think, you know, our population tends to be more health-oriented. They've, they've helped reduce these risk factors. And, again, fortunately, we haven't seen a lot of it in our practice. Well, uh, that makes sense. It's a selective population that's concerned about their health, probably taking some steps to be healthy, the ones that would go to a naturopath. So that makes sense that you would not see as many as other people might be seeing. But most, most of us, we don't know how far we are on that pathway to optimal health or chronic diseases because this could be like an iceberg. You don't know what's under the water. So we don't know exactly. if we're on the way to get a chronic disease or if we're doing pretty well. But wherever we are, do you have any other recommendations we can take to minimize our chances of getting COVID? Or, and another question is, once we get it, um, you know, as long as we're okay and don't need to go to the hospital, what can we do to uh, give our immune system and our health a shot to do well with COVID? Well, again, I think in terms of prevention, you know, I think eating healthy food is the best thing anybody can do, no matter where you are in your health journey. If you start changing, you know, your diet, if you're not eating healthy to eating healthier foods, that gives you a huge leg up on helping support your gut function, helping support your immune system. And for people that have chronic gastrointestinal problems, you need to understand that, you know, 80% of your immune function comes from your gut. So if your gut's not functioning well, it's going to be really hard for your immune system to function well. So it's really important that, you know, you make sure that your gut is working as well as possible. And again, diet's really, I think, the biggest driving factor to get that to change. And again, no matter what your economic status is, where you live in the world, you know, anybody can make those type of diet changes that we just talked about. You know, beyond that, you know, for people who have gotten COVID-19, particularly if you catch it early, I think, again, there's no research on any of this. This has just been my experience. But, you know, we really just kind of load people up with different nutrients and herbs to help get their immune system activated so it can deal with any infection. So whether, you know, now that we're going into flu season, I would use the same process for influenza as we've sort of been doing with COVID-19 for the past several months. So, you know, nutrients like zinc, you know, we know that zinc is incredibly important for helping support your immune system. It's also a natural antiviral nutrient. Uh, Zinc itself can inhibit viral replication. And, you know, one of the protocols they've used for early COVID-19 has been hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin with zinc because hydroxychloroquine helps, you know, zinc get into the cell, which probably helps, you know, kill the virus. So just having zinc as part of a, a way to support your immune system can be incredibly helpful. Things like vitamin C, vitamin C helps support your immune system. I use a lot of vitamin A. Vitamin A is a nutrient that actually helps uh, support what's called secretory IgA, and that's your first line of defense in your mucous membranes. So when you get exposed to a virus or a bacteria in your nose, your throat, your lungs, or even your gut, you know, IgA is that first molecule that's going to react. So if we can help raise your IgA levels, we're just giving you a little extra protection at the mucous membrane level to hopefully prevent that from getting further into your body and causing, you know, other types of problems. So I use a lot of vitamin A, vitamin C. I mentioned the vitamin D. And then we've got a lot of other herbs that are incredibly helpful. Uh, Mushroom extracts in particular can be fantastic for helping support natural killer cells and T cells. So these are the direct scavengers of your immune system that once they see something that's foreign, go right after it and kill it. So mushrooms like maitake or shiitake, reishi, and again, you can go to any health food store and find, you know, various versions of these uh, extracts. 
There's a mycologist named Paul Stamets who's very well known and actually had a great documentary called Fantastic Fungi, I think on Netflix, that, you know, he talks about the medicinal properties of these, these different mushroom extracts. So mushroom extracts can be very helpful. There's an herb I like called andrographis. Andrographis has a lot of research as an antiviral, again, not specifically with COVID-19, but against other types of viruses like influenza and cold viruses. So we use things like andrographis. Uh, there's another herb called astragalus. So again, we have a lot of herbs at our disposal that can help you know, boost the immune system in a positive way. And again, if you're new to this and you, you don't really know anything about it, it might be a good idea to get in touch with a healthcare provider that's trained in herbal medicine that can give you better guidance on specific brands and dosages. But just know that you know, between nutrients and herbs, we have a lot of things at our disposal that we can use in early onset uh, COVID-19 or other viral illnesses to prevent them from causing more problems. Well, I'd like to chime in a few comments on some of what you just suggested. I, I understand that when you take vitamin D, that you should take vitamin A and maybe magnesium with it because if you take a lot of vitamin D without the vitamin A, uh, it could be challenging. Because uh, Also, um, on uh, hydroxychloroquine, we had Dolores Cahill here, who's an Irish virologist, and the media has been censoring this. And they come out and say there's a lot of cardiac risk factor. But according to Dolores Cahill, who's an expert in virology, uh, you only need about three pills because it's got a long half-life. It's essential that the studies go with zinc because its purpose is to escort the zinc into the cell to prevent virus replication. And uh, you can monitor, monitor, monitor the cardiac risk factors. You can monitor the QTC interval. And this medication has been given for 50 years, but there's been such a push to censor it. And when the doctors tr- came out and said, look, this can help, they were censored. And then when Trump tried to support the censored doctors, he was censored. And vitamin C, <laughs> I understand they were using it very successfully in China, 20 grams per day. And a doctor who was doing it, his office was raided. So this is kind of weird. And under Graphis, uh, Dr. Klinghart, a clinician whom I respect in, m- m- markedly, recommend that's one of his recommendations when you if you get COVID as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, again, I, I think we've got a lot of great tools in our chest for people, uh, particularly, again, if they're early uh, on in their illness. I, again, I've had a few people where they we caught it early on and we treated right away, and really it was a few days of feeling sick, uh, and they recovered fine, and no long-haul effect that we've been hearing about with some of the people with COVID-19. So, again, I think there's an opportunity if you can catch it early. Uh, I think, you know, where we run into problems is that for someone, particularly if they have a lot of risk factors, Again, my one patient who was hospitalized, she had a lot of risk factors, and unfortunately her roommate uh, had COVID-19 and was unaware and exposed her, and therefore she ended up in a hospital. And by the time we got to figuring it out, uh, she had already progressed pretty rapidly. So, again, it's one of those things I think if we can catch it very early, we have a great opportunity to keep it from getting you know, any more problematic than it's been for a lot of people. I want to make it clear we are recommending that you see your physician. We're not saying don't see your physician, don't see your clinician. We're only recommending things you can do at the same time. It's not a competition here. These are things that we can help empower ourselves. Other things that I'm told can help, uh, for example, uh, when you start feeling the ticklies in your throat and you and you don't want them to get to the rest of your system, there's various things you can gargle with. Some people found that if they gargle with liposomal vitamin C, I personally use HOCL to kill the germs. Uh, some people use biocidin, but there's also been studies just gargled with white with mouthwash, and that can increase your chances so that whatever creepy crawlies, are, you know, if you're starting to get a throat tickle, it can decrease your chances of it going further. Yeah, I, again, I think we got so many things. I mean, I've used a lot of uh, silver hydrosol for years for various upper respiratory infections. I find for my patient population, it works quite well. So, again, we, we have a lot of things at our disposal, but definitely, you know, if you feel like you might be coming down with COVID-19, definitely go see your doctor, get tested, find out, because, again, that may help dictate, you know, what you and your doctor want to do to get you feeling better. Careful about the silver, Darren, because I have a friend whose office was rated for using that as well. Yeah, uh, again, I, I definitely wouldn't go out there and advertise. I'm using it to treat COVID-19. But if someone calls and they're at the initial onset of an upper respiratory infection, I would absolutely use it. Okay. But 
I didn't hear that. What fascinates me is this whole toxic soup because they are synergistic. For example, there's, uh, I think uh, Dr. Prezzano was saying that a large part of diabetes could be caused by toxins. We've had one speaker say, if you've got uh, if you're fat and obese but have no toxins, your risk for diabetes is very low. I think Dr. Pisano is saying that the risk for certain uh, cancers and diabetes hugely, uh, the toxins are contributory. But it's not just, oh, a little bit won't hurt you because these are synergistic working by different mechanisms. For example, uh, something uh, in diabetes, one might go after the islet cells, another might you know, which is what make, where they make insulin. It might be going, other might be going toward the receptors so the insulin can't do its thing. I mean, so these toxins are huge. And, you know, for example, BPA is an interesting one. Uh, BPA and all these, I see these people in Speedos and Whole Foods drinking out of plastic uh, containers. They think they're very smart because they're BPA free. Yet they substitute BPU, BPS, and other things that are just as bad, even though it's BPA-free. And these <laughs> plastics can cause a lot of problems. Uh, the right. PCBs could cause a lot. I mean, I read, uh, and then another interesting thing I saw is that lead can decrease your IQ, I don't know, five points. Uh, then found that fluoride can do the same thing. PCBs can do the same thing. Wow. What if you get them all together? Consider the average American gets exposed to over 80,000 chemicals a year. And, you know, less than 10% of these chemicals are actually studied for their long-term health effects. So, uh, in fact, actually, there was one researcher that suggested maybe only about 200 chemicals have actually been studied for their long-term health effects, which is less than that. So, you know, for all the, the stuff that we're getting exposed to between, you know, pesticides, herbicides, volatile organic compounds, lead, mercury, arsenic, the combination of all of it, depending, again, on your susceptibility, uh, could become a potential predictive factor for developing chronic illness. I agree to a certain uh, extent with Dr. Pizzorno when you're talking about, yeah, are you going to get diabetes just because you're overweight? Well, not necessarily. But then again, I don't think you're going to find anybody in certainly the United States or probably most of Western society, if they are overweight, doesn't have a problem because a lot of the chemicals we get exposed to are fat-soluble and they're going to deposit into our fat tissue. And so if you're a person that carries a lot of, you know, excess fat mass, you are at greater risk of harboring these chemicals. And even though for people who are overweight, you know, you see that fat kind of on the outside of the body, but remember, that's accumulating in and around your organs, too. So you can get fatty liver, you can get fat that accumulates around your heart and around your kidneys and around your spleen. So this fat is really potentially being deposited elsewhere, and therefore these chemicals can go, you know, any number of different places in our bodies. And if it accumulates to, again, a certain point, uh, you'll get that tipping point where then you start to experience, you know, health issues. So certainly, you know, getting our, our fat mass down, getting more lean muscle mass is one of the best ways we can help, you know, lower our load. But if you're someone who's already overweight or obese, you know, you may find as you start losing weight, you feel worse because now your body's mobilizing all those toxins that have been stored in your fat tissue and just kind of like wringing out a sponge, you know, as you squeeze it, it's going to start, you know, getting all that stuff dripping out and that includes the toxic stuff. So I always tell people, you know, if they're going through a weight loss program, especially if it's a rapid weight loss program, don't be surprised that you feel really terrible because now your body's mobilizing all the stuff that may have been stored for many years. So that's where slow, steady uh, fat mass loss tends to work a lot better for people that, A, they don't feel as bad during the course because they're not mobilizing as many toxins at one time, and B, you know, their body's actually going to help reset their metabolic set point so it actually sustains. Because, you know, we see so many people that they lose weight quickly, and then, you know, a month, two months, a year, you know, they've gained all the weight back because their body never really metabolically reset itself. So if we can help people in that so slow, steady process of losing their fat mass, that's going to reduce their risk for all these chronic illnesses. You mentioned insecticides. Um, uh, VG Valionados, who is on this show, uh, wrote a book about his 25 years where he worked for the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. And they never had a lab studying these. I mean, there was a lab that was supposed to be studying these, and the 
effects of yeah. the agriculture, the agrochemicals, but they did two months and fudged the rest. There was no study on it. But I'd also like to mention glyphosate, which is a main component of Roundup, which is used on our genetically modified foods. Glyphosate, like EMF, opens up the blood-brain barrier, opens up the gut barrier, interferes with intercellular communication. But even worse than that, it shuts down some of our detoxification systems, so it's harder to get these toxins out. And it also, through the shikimate pathway, interferes that you can't make the tertiary amines, such as uh, tryptophan and serotonin. I mean, that one's a real cluster, and it's found everywhere in the Antarctic. It's everywhere. And and modified foods on their own have health risk without the herbicides. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the study that was published, uh, maybe it was a little over a year ago, two years ago. Uh, they looked at wine in California, and they looked at conventional and organic wine, and every single vineyard had glyphosate in it, even the organic wines, because we use it so much in the U.S., it's now in the table water, in the you know deep in the ground, and even if you've got a, a farmer that's doing everything right up top, they can't stop what comes in from underneath. And so, you know, if you've read Dr. Stephanie Stennis' work, you know, looking at glyphosate, you know, she found a strong correlation with autism and, again, many other chronic health issues. And, you know, the farmers here also use it as a drying agent for uh, wheat. So when they harvest wheat, they douse it in Roundup before they harvest it because they find they get a higher yield. So not only are we using it just as a pesticide, uh, now we're using it as a uh, an herbicide, uh, not a pesticide. So in Dr. Eric Sertrolini, he's the, the lead researcher. He's the one that got the World Health Organization to you know, classify it as a potential carcinogen that it can cause cancer. And he found in his animal studies, these mice were getting massive tumors. And what's really scary is that he found that the inert ingredients in Roundup were actually a thousand times more toxic than glyphosate. So, you know, we give glyphosate so much uh, press because of the work that's been done with that. But the worst part about Roundup is actually the inert ingredients. And because they're considered inert, they haven't been really studied at all. So, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, we are, again, we're getting exposed to a lot of different chemical exposures, many of which disrupt our endocrine system. They mess up our hormones. You know, I'm seeing girls in my practice that start getting, you know, their menstrual cycle at eight or nine years old, uh, boys with precocious puberty, women who start going through ovarian failure, early menopause. I see a lot of young boys now that have testosterone levels of a 90-year-old man, and they should be, you know, having massive testosterone levels as they're going through puberty. So we're seeing this this trickle-down effect on how it's messing up our hormones, too, and our gut. And again, it's just one of those big factors that it's such a beast. Uh, I don't know if there's anywhere in the world you can go anymore that's really chemical-free. Um, so again, we just kind of have to take stock of what we can control. And you know, eating organic is one of it. Choosing not to use certain chemicals in and around our home, our personal care products. You know, that's I think the best we can do to help. You know, at least minimize our exposure. Well, I was going to jump in there talking about Dr. Seralini because he's certainly done studies on wine and uh, glyphosate, and he's done a lot of other studies showing rats getting big tumors, and he was on Monsanto's hit list. I mean, Monsanto and the Monsanto papers had eight files dedicated just to him and how to discredit him. And Stephanie Seneff, she was my college roommate, so I know her well. She was your college roommate. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Can you imagine that? All we cared about at that point was nothing to do with medicine. It was to do with toys. Well, I I give her a lot of credit as a computer scientist to come out and really take a look at the data and the statistics on how glyphosate is impacting human health. I mean, I think her work's been amazing. Absolutely. She's been on the show a couple of times. Yeah, three times, I think. No, a couple times anyway. Yeah, so also um, I found some memos from the Fed Food and Drug Administration where their internal scientists were warning not to go ahead with GMOs on their own because they had certain risk factors, but it seems those memos were ignored. And I think uh, Dr. Pustai has done some research, but he was certainly on Monsanto's list as well. Because Monsanto called up Clinton, called up Tony Blair, and said, "Shut the guy down," and they did. But anyway, he sh- and he was vindicated, vindicated ultimately. But uh, they certainly tried to destroy his reputation in the meantime. 
Well, I always found it interesting when I travel to Europe. It's like, you know, if you use genetically modified organisms, it has to be labeled in Europe. You know, we do not have truth in labeling here in the United States. And, you know, they tried to pass a law here in California a few years back to mandate that it get on the label. And, you know, the food industry basically got it, the bill killed. So, you know, and it's interesting because I noticed in Europe, you know, people don't eat it. You know, they know better. They choose not to put something in there that's been modified and tweaked. So I, I think, you know, they're a bit maybe better educated about the effects of it. And I, I know all the sort of controversy uh, in the research of it's harmful, it's not. Uh, again, I don't think it's rocket science to figure out that the less we tweak our food, the better off we are. And that, you know, uh, by and large, you know, we don't need to have these uh, GMO organisms, these GMO foods to be healthier population. In fact, I think we see quite the opposite. So, again, the less hands to touch the food, I think, the better. Yeah, I, I understand the food industry pumped $46 million into defeating that proposition, which I think was 37 or something like that. And that what they did is just create massive confusion and said it's going to increase cost. I mean, that seems to be the technique they use with the cigarette industry as well, create massive confusion and doubt. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. And fake studies. I mean, uh, you know, Monsanto, I mean, in the Monsanto papers, it was there that um, that they had science, they had their own scientists writing papers and getting uh, renowned scientists to sign off on them saying it was their research. Not nice. Another interesting <laughs> thing our government has done, I understand in 1996, they passed a law, according to E.G. Bellionados, that you could put carcinogens in our food. And also in 1996, they passed this law that you can't stop the placement of cell towers for health reasons. That's interesting. Well, it's interesting, you know, I mean, kind of circling back with the EMF thing, because I think it's one of our newest uh, pressing environmental issues, you know, particularly with the unrolling of 5G. And uh, not that we want to really kind of derail the conversation, but it was interesting. There was a a study that uh, got got held down. There was a group of firefighters up in Northern California that they installed. This was back in 2G. They installed a 2G tower in the firehouse. And firefighters that, you know, were born and raised in these neighborhoods were, like, they would forget where to go. They forget street names. They weren't able to make these calls on time because they literally couldn't remember how to get there. And uh, they all, I mean, it happened to multiple firefighters in this firehouse. And so they started complaining to a doctor in the area, and, you know, he's the one that kind of figured out that it correlated with the installment of the 2G tower. And they ultimately got the 2G tower uninstalled, and shortly thereafter, the firefighters' memory returned. They felt like they were themselves again, on top of which these guys were feeling more fatigued and had other health issues. And so the doctor wanted to publish a study on this, and the firefighters begged him not to because they were all afraid that they would lose their job. So he sat on this for, I want to say, maybe it was eight years, ten years. I can't remember when 2G came out, but it's been a while. And uh, it just recently now he's going to publish. And I know with COVID-19, I think everything kind of got derailed, but he was planning on publishing this year uh, just to show the detrimental effects of, of 2G. Now we're at 5G, which is a completely different technology. And um, just kind of demonstrating that you know when you've got close proximity to these strong output electromagnetic frequency devices, you know, it can affect, you know, brain function, memory. We're pretty sure, you know, it's interfering with gut function. And so uh, I think it's of grave concern as we start to unroll it. And, you know, we don't know really how bad it's going to be until it gets out there. But I was at an EMF conference last year with all of the lead researchers in the world uh, on electromagnetic frequencies, and they all share the same grave concerns. And I know certain parts of the world, in Europe in particular, they've been able to stall the unrollment of it to, until there's more long-term safety data. Uh, so hopefully here in the United States, we can get some sort of law passed that will slow that down until we uh, get better information about it. Yes, Brussels slowed it down. And there's been a lot of research in Europe that there's an increased death rate in various things if you're close to a cell tower. And I wonder when they start wanting to inject genetically modifying stuff into us, how that's going to mix up toxic soup. 
Yeah, well, you know, I think we have a history as humans of, you know, putting the cart before the horse and we unroll things and, you know, we don't really know what the long-term health effects are going to be. And, you know, even when you study something, you study that single piece, which doesn't take into conjunction how it fits with all the other pieces. So would, you know, one thing by itself be a problem? Maybe, maybe not. But what if that one thing with, you know, the two other things? So, you know, again, if you already have a genetic disposition, if you're already overweight, if you already have a pre-existing condition, you know, what is 5G going to do to you? Again, I don't think we can say it's going to harm everybody, certainly in the same way, but there will be a percentage of people. And I guess, is it half a percent? Is it 20%? Because that's a huge difference when you're talking about a worldwide population. So, you know, it's it's an unfortunate uh, fact that we have in science is that we can never really completely evaluate how each of these one things affects the, the totality of everybody. But I, I would certainly like to see more due diligence with 5G and see that there's been more long-term safety data because the stuff that's out there, particularly in the animal studies, is frightening. And if that translates to humans, I think you know we're looking for a potential mess. I have great concern as well. I mean, this toxic soup, I mean, 5G, yeah, I mean, some... Some of these frequencies resonate at the rate of the DNA. I've interviewed some people who said that the military has done studies exactly which frequencies cause which diseases. I mean, there's active denial where it makes your skin burn, and you can find that anywhere on YouTube. Active denial, it's used for crowd control. Also, you can use it to monitor our every movement, even if we're you know, in a cave that a beam of light can get into. I mean, uh, the possibilities with this are uh, alarming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I said, I think, you know, we just uh, as a society, you know, we have to stand up and start saying, you know, this is not acceptable and we don't like this. And again, if you've got, you know, elected officials that are in favor of this, vote them out. You know, the most, most power we can have as a people is the power of the vote. And if you've got people who aren't uh, voting in your better interest, then, you know, find people who will. I don't think most people are aware that's why I have this show, to give people information that, hey, your health is important and there's certain things that are very important for it. But anyway, um, you, is there anything else you want to particularly talk about? For example, do you want to talk about what role allergies have to play in all this? Or well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think allergies for so many people are a predisposing factor to so much chronic illness. And if you've ever had an allergy in your life, you know, if you're allergic to dust or ragweed, you start getting, you know, watery nose, you know, stuff rolling down the back of your throat, congestion in your nose, your lungs, your chest, you know, that, that clear fluid can really create the perfect breeding gown for infection. So again, in the era of COVID-19 and coming in through flu season, you know, if you can stop that fluid from forming, you know, bugs can't really grow well in a dry environment. They need fluid. They need nutrients. They need the right circumstances to thrive. And if you can selectively starve those bugs, even if you do get exposed, the risk of you getting an infection goes way, way down. You know, I see this a lot in kids that I work with, you know, kids with chronic ear infections, chronic strep throat, chronic bronchitis, almost across the board, allergy is the disposing factor. And once we get their allergies under control, we stop that clear fluid, they don't get sick anymore. And it's not to say you're never going to get sick. I think it's the nature of being human that occasionally you will get sick. And that's not always a bad thing. I think it's good to keep our immune system healthy and primed. But for the people who get sick all the time, I mean, I was a sickly kid. I was, you know, I had ear infections from the day I was born until I was about five years old when I got my tonsils and adenoids removed and had tubes put in my ears. Uh, of course, in retrospect, I think a lot of it was diet, but, you know, the circumstance was that, again, I always had this gunky fluid throughout my upper respiratory tract, and that just disposed me to everything else. And so the minute, you know, especially kids go to school, not the kids are really in school anymore these days, but when they, when they were all around each other, you know, it's just little germ factories, and it's just easy to pick things up, and then they bring it back to the household, and then mom and dad and siblings get exposed. So... You know, I think it's a, if you are someone who's been dealing with chronic sickness, uh, particularly chronic upper respiratory problems, it'd be wise to seek out somebody who can help identify what these allergies and sensitivities are. Because, again, if you can stop the fluid, you're really going to save yourself a lot of grief of having to deal with these ongoing infections. Are allergies a symptom of our, uh, you know, barriers breaking down? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think between, you know, leaky gut, we know you can now get leaky brain and you can get leaky nose. I mean, you know, these mucous membranes are there to protect us, but they are selective membranes. Some things are supposed to pass through, other things aren't. As those membranes break down and they allow more things to pass through, if that thing is ragweed, if that thing is dust, if that thing is a food, you know, that can trigger the immune system. And again, with allergies, like we were talking about with environmental toxins, it is a function of load. So if you're sensitive to food and mold and pollen and dust and cat and dog and whatever, the more exposure you have, the greater risk it's going to set off your immune system. And of course, it becomes a vicious cycle that once your immune system gets triggered and you get that inflammatory process, it then in turn breaks down that membrane even more makes it more leaky. So we've got to kind of, you know, stop the exposure when possible. So if it's the food, if we can identify the food, great, don't eat it. Now you don't have the exposure. You know, if it's something like dust or mold, that might be harder because you can't really necessarily control your environment, but we can help try and modulate the way that your body reacts to it. So in our practice, we do a lot of immunotherapy. The concept is kind of like allergy shots. It's just that we do this under the tongue versus injecting it into your arm or your leg. And uh, if we can build your immune tolerance over time, we can help retrain your immune system to stop overreacting to whatever it is that bothers you. And allergies at their core are really overreactions of your immune system. So it really is just a function of retraining the immune system, saying, hey, look, this is a normal part of my world. Leave it alone. Don't react to it. And over time, you know, we can get people to the point where, you know, they can be around that trigger and it just doesn't set them off anymore. They don't get that clear fluid buildup. And again, they just stop getting infection. Well, it sounds like an allergy could be a precursor for an autoimmune disease where your immune system's out of uh, excessively acting. We have about a minute and a half left. So what is your most important information or points that you would like to convey to the audience? Well, again, if you're someone living with a chronic illness, take action now. It's never too late, no matter where you are in your health process, to turn things around. And the sooner you start making those steps to get your health better, the the better you're going to feel, the faster you're going to feel that, and the less likely you are going to develop any other type of chronic illness. I would certainly like to add to that that going to a naturopath or a functional medicine practitioner or a nutritionist is a great place to start because there's a lot of uh, practitioners that might not be trained in these which are focused on looking underneath the hood, what's causing all this, rather than looking at the symptom level and how can we make you more comfortable. So it's very important. Any other last points? No, I think, uh, again, you know, in the era of COVID-19, I just think this is a great opportunity since a lot of people are at home. Their schedules are a little bit softer than it used to be. People now have the time to start making those preparations, making those plans, reaching out to the right people. So, again, I think now is a great time to really take stock of your health. Love the positive approach here. So there we have it, folks. More information to put in your armamentarium to help get you on that pathway toward optimal health. As he said, normal blood values don't really mean much because it's based on 95% of our population, most of whom their health is not optimal. So share, go research, find out the information, take one step at a time in improving your diet and your environment, etc. Share with your colleague, share with your clinicians. Uh, make sure to go to your physician and follow his advice as well. So share all this and above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.